I know we just prayed, but um, I forgot to ask Judy to pray for the reading of God's word. So will you join your hearts with me for a short prayer? Lord, as we hear your word today, we ask for you to give us the ears to truly hear, the minds to fully understand, hearts and souls that are willing to accept, and hands and feet and bodies that are willing to obey. We pray for your comfort in these words. We pray for your guidance in these words. And we pray most earnestly for your strength and your encouragement in these words. Whatever it is you want to say to us, God, we open ourselves to receive it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, you might have gathered, we're going to talk about wilderness as we continue our journey of understanding suffering. And I already forgot where I put the little clicker. Do you? Time out, sorry. Where does it go? Anybody see a clicker? Um, Judy, did you see one when it was up here? Oh, like a little black clicker? Little mouse thing? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Maybe it's in my bag. We're trying something new today. Oh, goodness. Yes, it's in the bag. (sighs) The things you try to do to get out of the way, and then you just get in the way some more. So, all right. So we're talking about wilderness today. And you might be familiar with it, but you might not be. Wilderness is a, is a metaphor as well as something that's real. It's a, sim, it's a symbol as well as something that is what it is. So wilderness uh, is, first of all, a physical place, right? It's, we would consider it the bush. In Scripture, it's a very different kind of physical place than what we imagine here in British Columbia, unless you're really far north, maybe. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the physical difference of the place that the Israelites called wilderness. But wilderness is also a symbolic place. It's a metaphor for experiences that we go through. Experiences of suffering. Experiences of pain. Experiences of wandering. Of questioning. Of grumbling. Of complaining. Experiences that we go on ourselves, places where we feel as though there will be no end, as well as places that we journey with other people that we love. Wilderness represents all of these things in Scripture. And in particular, it's the key story, along with the Exodus, it's all one story, of the Israelites. So this morning we've sung like, what, two or three songs that have talked about the cross and the centralness of the cross to our story, to the Israelites, the escape, the rescue from Egypt and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness were their key story. It's what they continue to return to, just as we continue to return to the story of the cross. So to help us kind of have a full picture of what the depth of this word means, because Scripture says what it says, but it also says what it says. We're going to look at these three ways that wilderness is talked about in Scripture. So the first thing we need to do is we need to remember where Israel comes from. So when Israel is a slave in Egypt, which could be its own kind of wilderness, right, slavery, this was the setting. 
that's not so bad, right? Like crops are growing, it's beautiful, it's green. Remember that for when they start to complain and what they complain about, okay? And in the very first steps that they take out of there, this is what it turns into. So the green in that background there, that's where the Nile River floods. And everything that's in the path of the Nile River is beautiful, right? It's green, it's, it's, it's life-giving. And then just a few steps away, it turns into this desolate place. And if you could zoom in on our faces, you would not see pleasant ones. And we had stairs. So imagine for the Israelites, the first steps that they take out in following God is into a place of desolation where nothing survives on its own without help. This is called Yeshimon wilderness. It's based on the verb to be desolate. So from that kind of wilderness, the Israelites entered this kind of wilderness. And in the, let's see. Like this little corner here, those are actually little green bushes. So all these little things here are green things growing. So there's some presence of life, but again, it's a place of very little rain. It's a place where you're relying on the Bedouins and the people who lived in that area who know how to survive there to help you survive. So this is in the Sinai area, which is the first place that we're going to read about the Egyptians going to in our text for today. So this is called Seah Wilderness. And there's no quiz. You don't have to remember these. But this is, a, this is the next kind of wilderness, a little less harsh. And then there's the final kind of wilderness, the one that we're most familiar with and the one that's most described in Scripture called Midbar. And this is the wilderness. This is what the lamb looks like in the wilderness of Paran and Zin. So this is the area of the northern Sinai Peninsula and southern Palestine and Israel and Jordan area. And this is the place where the Israelites spent 40 years wandering. This is the place where Petra is, for instance, in Jordan. So have those pictures in mind. It's very different, very different than what we would describe as wilderness. So if you have your uh, green Bibles, you want to turn to page 48. And Exodus 16, if you're reading in your own Bible this morning. And we're just going to go through and take some breaks here and there to talk about some things. And I, I, am, I feel very strongly, you know this, that Scripture is about telling us about God so that we know how to live, right? It's more about God than it is about us. Like, I don't ever want to call the Bible a how-to manual in that sense because it's first about God. But if I were to want to talk about being a how-to manual, this would be a good text for us to think about in terms of how to go through suffering. All right? So, Exodus chapter 16. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. So remember that green place? Remember how they were suffering there, but at least in Egypt they had the comfort of food. At least in Egypt we knew what we were going to eat. We knew that there would be enough, they say. At least back then you can fill in the blank. When we're going through times of suffering, it's it's so easy to look for the escape, right? To to remember a time when it was better. To ask God well or to complain and say, at least when I was in that bad relationship, I didn't sleep at lo- alone at night. Or at least when I lived in that old city, I had friends. At least when I was there, I had this thing that physically made me feel better. That's what the Egyptians are complaining about. At least I had some comfort. And then Moses and Aaron say, why are you complaining to us? It's God that's doing this thing. God God needs to be who you're talking to, not us. Who are we? We're just people who are doing what he tells us to do. God's the one you should be seeking, and God is the one who you're complaining against, the one who showed himself in Egypt through those crazy, awesome, crazy, scary plagues. God's the one you should be talking to. And how often do we, in our times of suffering, complain about the doctors who didn't figure something out quick enough? About the medicine that makes us have awful side effects? About the people who just don't seem to understand? How often do we catch ourselves complaining and grumbling, but never actually talking to God about what we're experiencing? I don't think God cares that much about, like, he's okay if we grumble and complain, as long as we're grumbling and complaining along with other things, talking to him, rather than blaming everything around us and never seeking him. Let's continue, verse 9. Moses said to Aaron, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. 
And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs. An omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as each needed, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So let's go back to verse 9. Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And how do the people draw near to the Lord? They look into the suffering. They look into the place of the suffering where the glory of the Lord is made seen in the cloud. It's not to avoid the suffering, but to seek God's presence in it. Because we know God is already there. We know that God is waiting to meet them there. Because God understands them and what they need. And then, instead of giving them what they have asked for, God gives them what they need. God sustains them by providing day by day their daily bread. Day by day, the people of God come to know God's presence through His provision. Providing just what they need. Providing daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus taught us to pray. A prayer that takes on great meaning when each day becomes about survival. Give us this day what we need to survive. So the people come to know God's presence on God's terms, which is to provide which is to draw near to Him, which is to know that He hears us even when we aren't talking to Him. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gather twice as much food, two omers apiece, 
When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. They, so they put, a, put it aside until morning. As Moses commanded them, and it did not become foul, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. I think this is my favorite part of the story. That there is rest in our wilderness. There is rest from the suffering. There is rest. There is Sabbath from the task of surviving day by day. For us, those of us who are experiencing different kinds of sufferings and wildernesses, it's having friends who will take you out to dinner that provides a rest. A reminder that your life is more than just trying to figure out how to survive. Or it's grandkids who draw pictures that go on your refrigerator. Or it's taking that trip around the world to see things that you've never seen before. God gives us gifts of rest from our sufferings. Let's finish. The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations in order that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the covenant for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is a tenth of an epoch. So God says, Put this symbol of my provision to you in your wilderness of suffering in the center of your camp so that you will remember and you will tell the generations about how I have provided and been with you. About how my presence, because that's what the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant about, has never left you in this place of desolation. That through my presence, the places that are wastelands become places of gifts from Yahweh. This story is told over and over again in Scripture. And, and in one passage, the Israelites are described as arriving to the promised land after 40 years of wandering 
in this kind of wilderness with sandals that are completely intact, no sores on their feet, their clothes are in perfect condition. They are pictured as people who have been brought through the suffering. And granted, it's a new generation. Granted, it's a new people, but it's a people who have been born and raised in suffering. Born and raised wandering around. Relying on God's provision. So there's two things. First is 40 years is not just a number. Just as wilderness is not just a place. 40 years in Hebrew, 40, the number, symbolizes understanding. So the Israelites wandered and were fed by God and as they understood, or until they understood, what it meant to trust God to be with them in that suffering. And the second is that God did it in a couple of ways. God provided through his presence the supernatural, the miracle that is manna. What is it? And quail and water because he promised to provide. Kind of reminds me about how uh, there's all these studies that talk about the power of prayer for healing and for people who are sick and for people not just who are being prayed for, but the people who are doing the praying. And science, science knows that it works, but they don't know how it works, right? It cannot be explained. That is the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, right? We cannot explain it. But God also provides in the normal things of this world, the way that the world works. So in the cases of our suffering, right, God works through providing health care and doctors and therapies and pills that we can take to help us recover and get better, prosthetic limbs. That is the work of God to provide for people who are suffering. And it was true back then, too. So look at this map. So this is Egypt through here. This is Israel-Palestine area here. This is Jordan. And the red lines represent the trade routes of the, of the Bible times. So this is the routes that people would travel to trade goods. And Egypt at the time was a powerhouse. So lots of traffic would be going into Egypt. Now the, the yellow star is where the Israelites were slaves. And the dark triangle at the bottom there at the, at the end of the peninsula is Sinai. Notice, kind of a prime location to have the opportunity to interact with people who were traveling on those trade routes while they were slaves in Egypt. And then, these are the three areas where the Israelites spent their time wandering right along those trade routes. So God provided for them as they wandered with interactions with people who could provide what they needed to survive for those 40 years as they wandered and wondered and learned to be obedient. God provides in the supernatural as well 
as in the natural. Now, we could say, well, that's all well and good. That was the Old Testament. That's the Israelites. But how do I know this comfort of God now? Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you have a green Bible, you're going to go to where the pages start over, to page 27. So this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. And we're going to start reading at verse 9, just to set the context. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirits descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That verb there, drove him out, is the same verb that Mark uses when Jesus performs exorcisms. In the sense that God has no choice but to go out into the wilderness. The Spirit of God drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And this kind of wilderness. The Yeshimon kind of wilderness. The place of desolation where Jesus spent 40 days experiencing the supernatural provision of God as the angels waited upon him. Where Jesus spent 40 days and was tempted to complain and grumble, but instead showed us what trusting God looks like. Jesus understands the wilderness. Jesus understands our suffering and our wilderness because Jesus is already there meeting us, providing for us, blessing us with his presence, comforting us, letting us talk to him about it, seeking to let his glory be known. inviting us to pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I have one quote while the band comes up, and I want to read. 
Uh, if you have ever had a chance to read Walter Brueggemann, you might know this, but Walter Brueggemann does a lot of writing on the wilderness and on the land and on the presence of God. And it, it's a good reminder for us about what it means to be in the wilderness and seeking God's presence. So he says, Wilderness crisis issues for Israel and therefore for us revolve around Yahweh's presence. Like everything in the wilderness, it is not given in terms desired or expected. Like manna, God's wilderness presence is always enough on which to survive, but never feels like too much. Like manna, God can be graciously received, but not stored up or presumed upon. Like manna, God's presence is given out of his fidelity to us, but it can never be fully seen or controlled by us. That's the lesson we learn in going through times of suffering, that God is the one who is fully in control. Let's worship him.